We are continuing our study in the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 13 this morning. And if you would first, let's, if you need Bibles, there's Bibles under the pews, but uh, will you join me in prayer? Let's pray this morning. Lord God, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for a day to come and to read your word, to study your word, to study you, and to find ourselves falling more deeply in love with you on this day. We pray, Lord, for our hearts, every person that's here this morning. You know us all together, Lord. You know everything that's going on in our lives and and every sin that we've struggled with, that we're struggling with, every trial, every tribulation, every joy, everything that we are excited about. Um, You know everything that's around the next corner for us and even throughout all eternity. And I pray that you would use this morning, this time in your word to build up your people so that we might glorify you as much as possible. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. In as a, as a church, the name of our church is Reverence Bible Church, but you'll frequently see that that underneath our our name there's a little phrase that says christ-centered bible driven and we will have people sometimes that will say well why'd you put christ-centered or bible driven on that it seems like isn't that like a given you're christians right christ should be central to everything that that you do and and yet i believe that it is very easy for churches to go far away from being Christ-centered. It's very possible for churches to get to a place of being much more man-centered than Christ-centered. And we're coming to a a sermon that is coming from the, the Apostle Paul. And we find within this sermon a man preaching in a way that is incredibly Christ-centered. You read from him, in, and I'll, if you want to turn there first, you can, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And, and you see a little bit about the way in which he thinks when he is preaching. So before we look at his first sermon, let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So you hear his heart here where it's just, it was not about eloquence of speech. It wasn't about earthly human wisdom. He says, I didn't, I don't want to, Come to you. I was determined not to, to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You find in 
in Philippians where he's talking about all the things that, that he had been through and the difficulties that he faced. And yet he, he talks about all his attainments and what, what he has done and all that he has accomplished as an earthly man. His pedigree and who he was. And yet in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes which is from God by faith. When we talk about being Christ-centered, it is accounting of everything else as rubbish in, in, in comparison to the excellencies of the knowledge of Christ. I believe that, that you find this throughout all of Scripture. It's bringing us to a place that it is all about Him. The motivation for us in this life you just take different areas of our lives. Let's, let's think of marriage for a moment. The reason why we are to love our wives the way Christ loved the church is because our marriages are just all to point to be a picture of Christ in the church. It's, it's a picture of it. It's, it's, it's to be that the world would look upon us and see displayed within us the gospel. Why, why do they love each other like that? Why do they continue to be faithful to one another like that? Why do they, they continue for decade after decade after decade? And it is because our marriages are to be a picture of Christ in the church. It's to be a picture of He, he is our, our bridegroom and we are the bride and He loves us and He gives His life for us and He tells us, husbands, love your wives that way. When we forgive one another and, and, and someone has sinned against us and we forgive one another, the motivation for forgiving and the way that in which we decide to forgive is we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Every part of our lives, we look at it and we say, how has Christ forgiven us? Does he forgive us and say, okay, but I'm going to kind of keep this there and I'm going to pull it out when I need to? No, he, he hurls it into the depths of the sea. He remembers it no more. He hides it behind his back. He forgives us and he tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far have, has he removed our transgressions from us. And so we look at forgiveness and relationships and how we are to be. And we think, okay, I, I, I am to, I'm to forgive like Christ has forgiven me. I'm to love the way that Christ has loved me. When we think of why do we work and why do we do all that we do, we do it that Christ may be exalted. We do it because we're just pilgrims and we live here and we're wandering through, but our home is in heaven and, and everything is about him. It's all about him. When we think about our salvation, every bit of it from beginning to end is not based upon us or what we've done or what we've accomplished. It is all about Christ and him crucified. Christ that he fulfilled all righteousness. He did these things. He fulfilled it all, and he paid the price for all of our sins so that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so when you think about Christ-centered preaching and Christ, a Christ-centered church and why we think that way, it is because it is all about him. 
It's all about him. I could, you think of every problem that people have and it is about Christ. If you're sitting here saying like, I just, I, I have a low self-esteem. I have a low self-esteem. That's my biggest problem. I have a low self-esteem. So many preachers will say that your biggest problem is that you have a low self-esteem. And I'll tell you, that is not your biggest problem. By far. Your Christ esteem. See yourself in Christ. I mean, if, if you think little of yourself, think of who you were, what you are, the kind of sinner that you are, and then think, Almighty God sent His Son to die for you. He's given you His Holy Spirit. He's given you purpose in this life to live for, to store up treasures in heaven and not here on this earth, to be in a place of wanting to exalt him and to please him and to live for him. And he gives you the ability to do that. When you think of of missions, we do missions because of Christ. We desire more than anything for people to know Christ, to be able to see Christ, to be able to hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. I I, I think of every trip that I did that I've done overseas, bringing in food or doctors or medicine, immunizations, whatever it was that we brought in to different people in different parts of the world. Every bit of it was to point them towards Christ. We're not humanitarians that do these things just so that we feel good about ourselves and that we've done these things or we've helped them physically. It is always to point them towards Christ. You hear Jesus say, and as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto who? Unto me. It's all about Christ. We are to be centered upon Christ. We are to look upon him in the pages of Scripture and see his beauty and see his excellencies and treasure him above everything else in this world. If you're here battling with sin and you're fighting sin or you're falling into sin and you find yourself doing that over and over and over again, the problem isn't that the sin is so wonderful. The problem is that your view of God is way too small, that you do not treasure him nearly enough as you ought to. That you've gotten to a place where your mind is, is just dabbling with the stuff of this world when you have failed to see the beauty and the excellencies of Christ. And so in this life, we are to be centered upon Christ in the gospel. And you find that here in Acts chapter 13 when Paul begins to preach this sermon. He's set sail with Barnabas and they've gone from Paphos into Perga and John's departed from them as we saw last week. And they come into the synagogue and in the synagogue they're reading the law and the prophets and the rulers of the synagogue are saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And so Paul stands up. We come to Acts 13, verse 16. Paul stands up. And motioning with his hand, he says, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Now here, we, when we think of this, it's men of Israel, these Jewish people that are there within the synagogue, and men who fear God. These are those that are the Gentiles, who are Gentiles that believe in the gospel, or those that have a belief in the God of Israel, but they're not willing to be circumcised. And so they're amongst this class of people that are referred to frequently as those that are those that fear God. So he's speaking to them. And he says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. 
And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. So it begins by just talking about the history of mankind, history of what God has done. He says, it's him, it's God that chose our fathers. He exalted them when they were just strangers in the land of Egypt. You see that taking place with the Israelites where they're there and they're, they're in slavery amongst the Egyptians and they're in a place of incredible trials and tribulation and God's working on behalf of them. We, we see in Exodus chapter 1 where there's these, these, these midwives that feared God. And when the king told them to, to, to kill the children, the male children, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. It tells us that the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt with all the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God, he provided households for them. God just blessing the midwives, ministering to the midwives, caring for the midwives because they feared God and said, we're not going to kill these children. What happens to the people of God? Rather than all of the young boys being put to death, the people multiplied and they grew very mighty. They grew mighty. Even amongst slavery in Egypt, they grew mighty. And the Lord was working on behalf of them. With an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. We see that, that he causes just plague upon plague to come upon the Egyptians to the point where they come to the sea and there's this wall of, of water and there's all of the, the Pharaoh and his armies coming at them with their chariots and their horses and their weapons and they're sitting there and just complaining and what does God do? He just separates the waters they go through. And here Paul is just saying like, it was God that did that. God did every part of that. In verse 18, it says, Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. He talks about his people and says, well, what happened for those 40 years in the wilderness? God put up with them. He was patient with them. We see that the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to inhabit the land. He's providing for them. He provides water for them. They're thirsting. In Exodus 17, it says, the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river. And go, and behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And what did God do? He provided for them water. Not only that, but Deuteronomy 29.5 tells us that for the 40 years in the wilderness, their clothes did not wear out, and their sandals had not worn out on their feet he made it so that their clothes persevered 
living in the wilderness for 40 years. Their clothes did not wear out. They just kept going and going and going. Their sandals did not wear out. They just kept going and going and going. God provided for them. He cared for them, even though they complained and they complained and they complained and they complained. God continued to provide for them and to care for them. In verse 19, it says, And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. So God was the one. Seven nations were the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And Joshua 7.1 tells us that it is these that God destroyed. It was God that did it. In Acts 13, verse 20, it says, After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So God gave six minor judges, six major judges, even though the people were in places of disobedience. Between the judges and the king of Israel was Samuel the prophet and priest. And God told Samuel to give Israel a king, even though they were in rebellion to the Lord their God, who was supposed to be their king. But God was gracious with them. He gave him a king. He gave him Saul. In verse 21, it says, And after they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. He gave him their king. In verse 22, it says, And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So Saul is removed, and here comes David. And you think of how David came about, and awesome to see God's hand upon it. So Paul's preaching to these people, and he says, you remember, David was raised up as king. How did it happen? Well, if you remember the story, there's, in 1 Samuel 16, God says to Samuel that he is sending him to Jesse the Bethlehemite, and from him he'll provide a king among his sons. And so they go and they look, he, here, here Samuel goes to, to Jesse, and son after son after son after son goes by. All of his sons go by. And every one of them, Samuel's saying no, or God is saying no. It gets to the end and it's just like, don't, do you have any other sons? And they said, well, yeah, there's the youngest one. He's out taking care of the sheep. And, and Samuel says to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in and it says, now he was, a root, he was rudy and with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. David, the last one that you would have thought of as far as the one that would have been picked. And yet we find within it that it goes along with the, what was said in Genesis 49.10 that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah and Jesse's son David came from Bethlehem in perfect alignment with that lineage. Remember when the angel came to Mary and says, Don't, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. He will be great and he'll be called the son of the highest and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is perfectly in alignment with all that he was to be from the king of David, that he would be the Messiah. And so Paul is taking him through history to David. And then he says in verse 23, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. He brings the people from all of their history, say it all came to Jesus. Jesus. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, it says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and he will establish his kingdom. And that was the one whom came. It was Jesus. From this man's seed, according to the promise, there was coming one who was a savior, a savior. From there, he goes and begins to talk about Christ and his life. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. John the Baptist came, prophesied beforehand that he would come, And the way in which John the Baptist thought of Jesus is, I'm not even worthy to just unloose his sandals. That's who he is. That's the worth of Christ. So Paul says in Acts 13, 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. They crucified him. He had done nothing wrong. They crucified him. But what happened? God raised him from the dead. And so he's speaking to all of these people and saying, this is what God did. God took this one that was promised. He came. He fulfilled all righteousness. He didn't do anything wrong. It's the message of salvation that we're sending to you right now. He died and rose again from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. He was seen for many days after he rose again from the dead. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus. And it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This this is glad tidings. This is the best news that you could ever hear. When you read Psalm 2 and it says in Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It is talking about Christ. 
You go through Psalm 2, it's not a long psalm, but it is absolutely a messianic psalm that is just pointing towards Christ. And he's taking these people to to a a passage in which they would have read on a regular basis and said, all of that in Psalm 2, it is pointing towards Christ. The one that is begotten, it is Christ. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to seek corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raises up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. David's in his tomb. David saw corruption. But when it it said that there would be coming one that would not see corruption, it was talking about Christ. He rose again from the dead and he appeared to all those people over many days. They are all witnesses. Therefore, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. For us this morning, through Christ is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. It's the best news that any one of us can hear. Think of every sin in which you have committed. And as you start going through the big ones, you'll fail to remember the big ones. You could continue on and try to remember the sins in which you've committed, and yet the bottom line is, is you have sinned countless times over the course of your life. And any one of them was worthy to send you to eternity in hell. And yet, through this man... Christ is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. By him, everyone who believes. All of these words are just absolutely critical. We come to a time of celebrating the, the, the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the, the Reformation on this October 31st coming up. Justified. Forgiven of our sins. How? Is it by our works? No. By him, everyone who believes is justified from the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You could never have been justified by the law of Moses, and yet you have been justified. You have been made as if you have never sinned. Perfect, holy, white, pure, without any spot, without any blemish, and it is all because of Christ. It's all because of Christ dying, rising again from the dead, that whosoever believes in him is justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. By the law of Moses, by doing everything that God said in Scripture as far as here's all of the rules. You could never have been justified even by doing 
all of those things because you have failed miserably in it all. And yet you have been justified through Christ. From here he says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were declared, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Think of the response. Come to Acts 13 and verse 42. They're hearing this. And it tells us when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles, they begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. We just read through the sermon, and very likely it's a summary of what was said. But you go through this sermon. And as we get to the end of it, the people that are listening are saying, they are begging, can you please tell us the same thing next week? Why would they think that way? Why would they be there saying like, please just tell us that again next week? It's because it meant everything to them. Forgiveness of sins? Forgiveness of sins that could come through faith in Christ. This one in whom all of history is talking about, pointing towards, was Christ who was crucified and rose again from the dead. And whoever believes in him, they're free from their sins and they're no longer under the law of Moses. And they're hearing these things, they're saying, please tell us again. We beg you to tell us these things again. Verse 43 says, Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Almost the entire city came to hear. You remember how we began where you have Paul talking about the way in which he preaches. I didn't come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How did these people beg for more? How do those that listen speak out and, and, and the entire city comes to hear it the next Sabbath? It is not because of his persuasive words. It wasn't because of his human wisdom. But it was a demonstration of the spirit and of power. 
the demonstration of spirit and of power. You may be here this morning and just, you have tried so hard to do it on your own. You tried so hard to just be a good person, to live the best life you possibly can. And yet when it comes right down to it, you know that you failed over and over and over again. You're prone to sin. You're fallen. Every one of us. And yet you hear that whosoever believes in him will be justified. Whosoever believes in him will receive the forgiveness of sins. Of Christ who came, appointed by God as God's son, came, died on the cross for your sins, rose again from the dead, was seen by many. And whoever believes in him has forgiveness of sins. And you hear that, and it is absolutely awesome to know that God can work in the most incredible way to bring you to salvation through the power of his Holy Spirit in you. There's people begging, just say the same thing again next week. We're bringing everybody to hear this next week. In verse 48, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. You see the sovereignty of God in it all. They're hearing. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The Holy Spirit was working in their lives. There was those that got more and more hard, wanting nothing to do with it. There's those that wanted to stay under the law of Moses. But then there's those that heard. And God's Holy Spirit did a radical work in their hearts. And their eyes were opened at the preaching of the gospel. And they believed and the word of God spread throughout the entire region. And we know at this point and even to the uttermost parts of this world. This is the God that we serve. Paul knew that he didn't have to come with anything crazy to get everybody's attention. All he needed was the simplicity of the gospel, preaching Christ and him crucified. The best news that anybody could ever hear, and it was going to radically transform lives. The gospel. The gospel takes us who are dead it makes us alive. Gospel takes us who were enemies of God and makes us his friends. Takes us who were aliens and makes us a part of his family. It takes us who were bound in sin and unable to do anything other than that and gives us new hearts renews our minds, gives us the Holy Spirit to work in us as he molds us and conforms us into the image of his son. It is the gospel that changes everything for us. For if you believe in him, your sins are removed. You have a Lord and you have a savior. You forget the things which are behind. You lay aside weights and the sins that so easily ensnare you and you Fix your eyes upon your Savior, Christ. And you run with perseverance towards him. 
not because you're trying to earn anything, but because of what he's done for you. When you're battling with prayer and not wanting to pray or not wanting to be in his word or not wanting to give or not wanting to do missions or not wanting to love your neighbor or not wanting to love your spouse or not wanting to obey your parents or not wanting to live holy lives, it is Christ and him crucified that brings us to a place of this is what he has accomplished for us. This is what he has done for us and out of love and adoration towards him and that we have been saved. I am no longer one who belongs to myself. I have been purchased with the very precious blood of Christ. I desire to run towards you. It changes everything for us. And so for that reason, may we as a church in every opportunity that comes, whether it be children's ministry or youth ministry or men's ministry or women's ministry or here on Sunday morning or young adults ministry or whenever the opportunities comes for missions or evangelism, may the message be consistently Christ-centered. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that... You have preeminence in all things. Every knee will bow before you. Every tongue will confess you as Lord. For all eternity, we will sing praises unto you for you saved us. You created us and you saved us. All the glory belongs to you for our salvation. We praise you for it. We praise you that you called us and we praise you that you gave us new hearts and you made it so that we were sealed with your Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You have done everything for us. And I pray that you being central within this church and specifically within our hearts would motivate us towards just incredible desire and passion to glorify you, to live for you, to worship you with our lives, to lay our lives down daily as a sacrifice because we treasure you above anything else in this world for we have seen your worth in the pages of scripture. And may you be central, Lord, as we sing praises to you now. You are the reason why we sing. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.